Well, it's uh, truly it's lovely to see you here today. And, uh, and some people say I've still got my mask on, but, uh, but no, it's great to be able to be here with you and to share fellowship together. And uh, it's also wonderful to know that there's folk online uh, listening, listening in. And uh, it's great to have you here with us. And we're praying that God will bless our fellowship together. When I had the news from the village hall that we could have more numbers in here and restrictions were being lifted, I must admit, I started to well up with tears. Um, uh, it's such a, a great joy to think. But also, over the last few months or year and a half, we've also absorbed lots of pain, haven't we, and anguish and confusion and uh, sense of restriction and so on. So it was a kind of mixed feeling in a sense, because although there's great joy, there's also the feeling, the pain of people's fears and concerns and so on. So it was a mix. And of course, as, as church leaders, we've been wrestling with uh, how to respond to the the news and so on over, over the months and over the last year and a half. So it's kind of a mix of emotions there. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's very significant that we're here. And we're still trusting the Lord as we work our way through it and know that he's in control. And that's our great hope, isn't it, as we, as we go forward. So great to see you. Uh, whether we still have fears and anxieties or whether we feel as if they're all gone for us or whether we're in between, it's great to have us here to be able to have fellowship together. So let's pray as we open our Bibles. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in charge. We thank you, Lord, that nothing has stopped your church all down through the centuries. Lord, we thank you that the gates of hell have never and will never prevail against it. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are building your church around the world. Whatever governments do or don't do, uh, whatever illnesses do or don't do, we thank you, Lord, that you are building your church. And we thank you for that great truth. And we thank you that you are at work in our lives. Lord, for some of us, well, most of us probably, it's felt a bit like a wilderness in many ways, not being able to have fellowship in, in the way that we, we love and enjoy. Uh, Lord, but we thank you that you have been keeping us. And we thank you, Lord, that even the, uh, the, the, the wilderness experiences that we may or may not have had, Lord, you will weave those into the plan you have for our lives. And so we thank you for that, that assurance. And now as we open our Bibles, we pray you'd open our hearts, teach us wonderful things from your truth, and help us to respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Great. Well, we've been going through a series on Amos. We've got two, three weeks uh, left, and uh, it's the, the shepherd prophet, uh, the man who came from south of Judah, up north, uh, into the Israel area. Uh, remember, there was a civil war. The nation was split into north and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Amos is the shepherd and uh, fig tree tender, who was sent by God to preach a message up there in the north. And the specific message for today is from chapter 8. The, a silent God is the most terrifying sound. A silent God is the most terrifying sound. Like the still before the storm hits. Question for you. Do you take God seriously? Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Do you take God seriously? That's an important question. Do you cherish and take note of God's word, what he says? Do we, or, that's good, that's good. Or, or, do we, or do we neglect it? Because sometimes we do, don't we, we must confess. Is what God says less important than the next novel on your reading list? How high on the priorities is reading the Bible compared or, and considering carefully what God is saying to you how high on your priorities is that as you go through life as you make decisions as you make choices as you go through the moral maze of this world 
Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse 24, consider carefully what you hear. Consider carefully what you hear. He continued, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken away from them. So the opportunity to listen to what God says is a great privilege, and we need to come to it not with a thimble, but with a bucket or a, or a builder's bag, as big as we can get, as big as we can manage, and we need to come with that capacity. And the danger is that if we keep coming with thimbles, we keep coming with the smallest possible container, then we lose the ability to listen in the end. We lose the opportunity. We lose the privilege of hearing God's word. We need to take God's word seriously. Now, at the beginning of, ch of chapter 8 of Amos, he's given another vision. And it's a picture of Israel, a picture representing Israel. And it's like a basket of ripe fruits. It's ready. And in this case, it's a picture of Israel being ready for judgment. So the first heading is this, a basket of end fruit. A basket of end fruit. And we're looking at verses 1 to 3. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. A basket of ripe end or end fruit. And I'll explain that in a moment. Verse 2. What do you see, Amos? He asked. Well, a basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe. The time is end for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Now the reason why I call it a basket of end fruit is because the Hebrew word for end is sounds like the word, sorry, the Hebrew word for end and the word, Hebrew word for ripe sounds very similar. So if you were to hear them, they would both sound like end or something very close to that. So there's a play on words. God is a wordsmith. Did you know that? Uh, and uh, God, is, God does puns. So that's encouraging to me. And uh, there's a pun here, but a very serious pun. Ripe end fruit. It's a picture of the nation. It's come to the end. It's come to the point of no return. Now, if God says something like that to you, if God said something like that to you, this is the end, what would you do? How would you respond? How would you react? Now, the Lord is not telling Amos to preach this message to the folk in the north because God is announcing a schedule. It's not a, a schedule of events like a TV program. This comes next and that comes next and you can take or leave it. This is because God is stirring a reaction. It's, it's going to happen. It's real. But God wants to stir a reaction in the people. He wants them to think about what he's saying. Now, many people in Israel, in the end, will not take notice. Many people will not listen. We know, sadly, that came true. But some will, and some did. Now, what if you were there in ancient Israel hearing this message? The time is ripe. The time is end. Your end fruit. Judgment is coming. How would you react? Would you, would you carry on just the same? Oh. Or would you ask God for mercy? Lord, I need your help. I need your forgiveness. What's going on? What is wrong in my life? Lord, why? What do I need to do? Would you search through what God had said? Would you go back to Amos and say, please, Amos, tell me more, because this, this is serious. I, I need to know more. Would you go back to the other prophets who have come and, and gone? Would you read through the Old Testament and find out more and look for hope, look for answer, look for salvation? Would you do that, or would you just carry on as you were, because it was convenient to carry on, because you're quite comfortable financially, security is quite good in the nation at this time. It's quite a wealthy nation. 
the nation of Israel has had a couple of hundred years to respond to the message. This is not the first time a prophet has, has preached anything like this and sought to get the people to respond. Now, we've had 2,000 years, haven't we, since Christ came. And many people have believed, and we praise God for that, and we praise him for his grace that he's included us. But, but now, you, how will you respond to Jesus? Jesus is the last voice, the highest, most important one that God has sent to speak to us. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Matthew 4.17 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Do we, in, as we've heard that, do we carry on? Do we ignore it? Or do we ask for mercy? Do we say, this is serious. I need to find out, see what Jesus said, see what he did. I need to look for hope. I need to look for salvation. Is that how we respond? Do we take God's word seriously? Now, what if you delayed some more? What if you delayed some more and carried on? And maybe the back of your mind thought, well, I'll do something about it later, but then found that you were too late. Then you found that a door of opportunity had closed. Jesus talks about that as well. The, the, the message of Amos is very similar, parallel to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to his message and what he did for us. Matthew 13, verse 41 says, The Son of Man, that's a description of Jesus, will send his angels and they will weed out his, of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is there describing a door of opportunity that's closed. Now the end has come. The end fruit has now been gathered and the judgment has come. So if God put that message to you, and he does through the gospel today, the gospel is a message of, of love and salvation, but it's also a message that becomes a point when the door is closed, either by our death on this earth or either by the return of Jesus. How do we respond? The second main heading is this. There's a warning to the greedy merchants. The greedy merchants. Verse 4 to 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. The nation was very wealthy. There was lots of wealth and security, military uh, and might and so on. But there's also, as all nations we know, there's the people who get trampled on. The poor in the nation too. Now, the wealthy people, they would be observing the festivals, they'd be observing the Sabbath days and so on. But we can see that their minds and their hearts, because they're greedy merchants, they're just wanting to get past those festivals, get past the Sabbath. Why? So they can go and make money. Verse 5. Saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath ended that we may mark its wheat. That's all they want. They want to get past the voice of God. They want to get past the opportunity to hear God so they can get back to their trade. And they traded dishonestly as well. It wasn't only just that they wanted to get past it to trade, because we all need to earn, but they wanted to get past and to trade so they could earn and cheat using false weights and measures. Verse 5, the second half says, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. They should know. They're the people of Israel. They should know what the Lord thinks about dodgy scales and measures. In Proverbs 20, verse 10, differing weights and differing measures, the Lord detests them both. And that's important in our commerce, in our business, in our work, that we don't shortchange people, that we give people the measure that they pay for, that we're honest, that we use honest scales or the equivalent of honest scales. 
Verse 6 says, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What does that mean? Well, Warren Wiersbe writes this, the poor were unable to pay for the necessities of life and had to go into servitude to care for their families. And the merchants would have them arrested for the least little offense, even their inability to pay for a pair of shoes. And so people were sold into slavery and sold into servitude because they couldn't pay. Why? Because the merchants were cheating them and, uh, and, and shortchanging them and so on. The way they trade was like shark practice, with no mercy. Someone could afford maybe so much, but they would, they would hold out and make them pay the, the, pay the full where they, when they could easily be merciful. They would show no mercy. They would exploit the poor, and this would put people, poor people, into slavery. Now imagine, imagine that you bought a bag of potatoes, 10 kilograms of potatoes, and you went home and found that the actual potatoes weighed 8 kilograms, but the rest was two kilograms of soil and stones. You'd be not very happy with that, would you? You've been cheated. That's not fair. Now, the Bible tells us, as we read from Proverbs, that God hates that kind of practice. You know, it's not, it's not funny. It's not clever. It's not a wheeler and dealer getting a, 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 you know, shot, a practice that you, know, you can half smile at. It's not an Arthur Daly kind of thing that we can laugh at. This is serious. Serious stuff to God. Now, if someone does that to us, we're not going to starve, are we? We're not going to starve if we have only 8 kilograms instead of 10. But imagine you have so little, and you buy that small bag of wheat there in Israel, and it's all that you and your family have. And when you get home, what you thought was a kilogram of wheat was, was half wheat, and half it was dust and dirt. You've been cheated. But you and your family are going to get very hungry. This is serious. This is what ha was happening. The greedy merchants sell people. Um, they, they, they already, the people they've already trapped into poverty by their sharp practice. And, and they, they sell people the dirt off the floor, packing out the, wheat with, with the, packing out the wheat with the waste, with the sweepings of the floor. And these are amongst the reasons why Israel is ripe for judgment, why Israel is, is ripe for God's righteous anger. Now notice this, that how sinful behavior, greed in this particular case here, pushes its way up, doesn't it? To press people down. It gets up, sin tries to get up, and greed tries to get up to oppress and crush people down to take advantage of people. And that's often the case, isn't it, that sin does that. Sin is me putting myself first, doing what I want. And in one way or another, whether it's in subtle ways or, or obvious ways, whether it's in the home or business, sin puts myself up above others because I want to get what I want. And it doesn't love others as I, I should. It doesn't sacrifice for others as I should. So sin always has this habit, uh, as in the situation here, of climbing up and then crushing down others. And it's something we need to obviously take note of here. And also, we see that the, the cause in this particular case was a love of money and the love of power that went with wealth. And it says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 in the New Testament, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, we might be sitting here thinking, well, there's no chance of, of, of you or, or, or I um, ever kind of get in that position because we'll never ever earn enough to be wealthy or to feel that we've got power and so on. But it's not always how much you've got in the bank, is it? Sometimes it's the attitude. And uh, we can be quite 
struggling and yet have an attitude to money that is, is wrong. So it's not all about a wealth that we can see. Sometimes it's, well, it always is basically the attitude of the heart, isn't it? So we need to be aware of the love of money and the, the way that that often turns people into power crazy and takes advantage and taking advantage of other people. So there's a warning here to the greedy merchants. I don't know how that applies to us, but it's in God's words. And maybe there's an application for you, I don't know, in your situation, in your work, maybe in the way that you treat other people. Let's take note of that, how the Lord applies it. But then the third, third heading is this. There's going to be upheaval and a bitter day. And so we've got, got verses 7 to 10 of Amos 8. Verses 7 to 10. Now, we know from the Bible that unrepentant sin will not be forgiven. It will not be forgotten. Verse 7 says, The Lord has sworn by himself, the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Don't forget this is about the people of Israel there. They're ripe for judgment. And God is saying, The Lord has sworn by himself, I will never forget anything they have done. Those are serious words, aren't they? Because God knows all about us. Like God knew all about Zacchaeus in the story we had with the children. And that's why one of the reasons why Zacchaeus' conscience would be pricked because he knows the Lord knows about him. He knows his name. How does he know my name? Interesting, isn't it? Now, you know those times when the teacher said to you that the homework needed to be on a certain day. And uh, if you were one of those students who's conscientious, well, you get the work done, you stay up, you burn the midnight oil, you get it done, and you hand it in that morning, when the uh, morning of the deadline, you hand it in with bleary eyes, with a sense of relief, you finished it, you did it. But then, the teacher announces to the class a few minutes later, well, I'm giving you a few more days, because those who didn't do it, well, I'll give you a second chance, you've got a few more days to go. What do you think? I, <laughs> I worked, <laughs> you worked so hard to get it done, and in the end, the deadline has been increased. I'm giving you a few more days, the teacher says. Now, some people think the judgment day is going to be like that. Some people think when Jesus returns, it's going to be like that. The Bible tells us otherwise. It says this lifetime is a day of salvation. This is the day of grace. This is the opportunity. If we don't repent of our sin now, if we don't turn to Jesus, our sins will never be forgotten because the record will be there. The Bible in Revelation talks about the books being opened and the records. So God has a record of all that we do and say and think, every single thing. Our sins will never be forgotten. We will be in eternity cut off from God, cut off from his mercy, under his judgment, because God knows what we've done, said and thought. But you know, that truth, that serious truth, when we realize that when we repent of our sins and trust in the Lord, he promises us this in Hebrews 8 verse 12. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Isn't that amazing? The very nanosecond that we become a Christian, God expunges, clears, wipes clean our record. Not just the sins we've done in the past, but the sins we're doing right there and then and the sins we're going to do in the future. He forgives our sins and he promises never to remember them. He, he doesn't say he'll forget them because God can't forget, can he? God is, knows all. He can't forget. But God chooses to remember our sins no more. So that the, when the books are opened, against our name is the blood of Christ, cleansing 
who has cleansed us from all our sin. Our record is expunged. We are clean in the sight of God. What a wonderful message that is, that is the heart of the Christian gospel, that if we turn from our sin, our sins are forgiven. Our sins will never be remembered. Now, what do you want? Do you want that? Do you want that? Do you want to be able to stand before God on that day knowing that your record has been expunged? Or are you muddling through thinking, well, maybe I'll get a second chance. Maybe God will extend the deadline in some way. Please, don't make that mistake. The Bible calls someone a fool who thought like that, a rich person who thought he had everything, and uh, that night he died, and he was too late. But right here and now, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're online, you're not yet a Christian, if you were to become one right now, you could know that that record is expunged, and God will remember your sins no more. And instead of your sin, you are credited with the beauty and the righteousness of Christ. Do you want that? I hope and pray so. Now let's get back to Israel in about 750 BC, around about that time. People in Israel were being complacent. Many were trusting in their wealth. There were those who were trusting in their military defenses. King Jeroboam II had built up the defenses and the land seemed secure. And God uses a dramatic image to reveal that everything they know, everything they're trusting in, everything they feel is so bolted down and so secure is going to be all upheaved. There's going to be a mighty upheaval. Verse 8. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. Now the people of the day would have known about the river Nile in Egypt. And every year the Nile, they're flooded. And it rose about 25 feet, the average of 25 feet. And the water uh, and the river mud and, and the silt would spread all over the, the farmland to a great distance. And the unstable structures, of course, will be washed away. And no doubt lots of other things will be washed away. And if you think of some of the mudslides that have gone on in Europe recently. And Egypt's farmland would, would be fertilized by the mud and, and the silt. And so it was good for them each year for that to happen. But it also wiped the land clear. Now, God is using this image not in any positive sense, but in this, to give this picture of devastation, a total upheaval of the land of Israel, this, the complacency, the, the, the pride, the, the security in human efforts. It's all going to be upheaved. It's all, there's going to be a mighty upheaval. Verse 9, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. In actually 736 BC, uh, there was actually an eclipse that would have appeared to, to Israel. And don't forget um, uh, that that would be something in people's minds, an eclipse. Things going dark. Uh, it's a picture of judgment in the Bible. It, and when it went dark, that would be a symbol to them of God's judgment. So that would be in their minds when they heard this. But eight centuries later, it went dark at noon. Eight centuries later, it went dark at noon at a place just outside Jerusalem. There were many witnesses to that. It went dark when sinless Jesus died to save us. It went dark. And he went dark because he was bearing the agony of the cross, but also because he took the devastation of bearing our sin and taking our judgment. So darkness is a picture of judgment. And God is saying judgment is going to come across the land of Israel back in the 8th century BC, and it did. 
later on, there was a darkness that came over Israel and over the land at that time. And it was a picture to us that God's judgment had come. But it didn't fall on the people around, did it? It fell on that man on that central cross. It fell on Jesus. That's why Jesus cries out uh, in the darkness. I'll read it from Matthew 27, 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the moment when the Lord Jesus was bearing, the time when Jesus was bearing the righteous anger of God, the Father. And he went through that so that if we repent and believe that we won't have to, so we won't have to endure the darkness of judgment, but we can live in the light and the love of the Lord. Now the next verse, verse 10, is self-explanatory really. And it's the consequence of judgment that will bring grief. This is what we need to be saved from. This is a, a picture uh, of what happened in history in ancient Israel, but a picture of what we need to be saved from an eternal uh, element of, of judgment, an eternal uh, dimension of judgment. Verse 10. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. And I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. In that time, like mourning, I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. We don't want that, do we? We don't want that. And the last heading is this, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. We're looking at verses 11 to 14. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Now, let me ask you, would you rather hear God rebuke you, challenge you, or silence from him? What would you rather? Now, imagine you've done something wrong. Would you rather say to your dad or mum, to anyone younger amongst us, uh, would you rather your mum and dad or a friend never talk to you? Or would you rather have them tell you what's troubling them, tell them what they've seen you do or think you've done wrong, talk it through, and then there may well be tears, there may have to be a sorry, but then you carry on with the relationship rebuilt and even strengthened. Or would you rather someone be offended at you and never talk to you? What if a close friend or husband, wife, gives you the silent treatment for weeks, for months? Would you prefer that? Or would you prefer to be open enough to talk things through, even right at the beginning before the the things settle into the heart and the, the problems. We know, don't we? It's obvious we don't like the silent treatment, do we? We don't want that. We don't want silence. We want to talk, if we can, right at the beginning before things get out of hand. Now, do you want to come to a point when God is silent? Do you want to come to a point when you've ignored his quiet words to you? You've ignored his straight talking to you, but now you've continued to refuse him, to take him seriously refused to be sorry for what he's been pointing out. And now you come to a point when you pushed it so far, you pushed it too far. And then when it's too late, you realize that, that you're in the wrong, you need to do something, but you search for God. 
And he says nothing. He's silent. And it's the silence before the final storm. Surely you don't want that. So do we take God seriously? Do we take what he says seriously? Do you cherish and take note of his word? Or do we neglect it? Is what God says less important than the next novel or book on your list? How high on your priorities is reading the Bible and considering carefully what God is saying to you? Do you consider carefully what you hear, what you read? Do you use a good measure, the biggest measure possible, or do you use the smallest measure possible just to get over, get past it, and to get on with the stuff you want to do? Now, the Bible is God's word written for us. Prophets spoke, historians wrote, uh, the Gospel writers observed about Jesus, the life of Jesus. The apostles wrote to the church's letters and it got put down, it got put, written down and it got collected. We've got the Bible, we've got scripture. Now, James Packer wrote this, a theologian. He says, let us then take our Bibles afresh and resolve by God's grace henceforth to make full use of them. Let us read them with reverence and humility, seeking the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let us meditate on them till our sight is clear and our souls are fed. Let us live in obedience to God's will as we find it revealed to us in Scripture. And the Bible will prove itself both a lamp to our feet and a light upon our path. Now, we know the truth of that, but I can hear already the guilt trip starting. The guilt trip starting. And you're saying inside something like this. Well, I have to plow through documents and manuals with work invoices and order forms, regulations, health and safety manuals that thick, risk assessments by the dozen. At school, you have to read the textbooks. You have to read to research. You have to read the classics, even things like Shakespeare and things like that. You have to read all these books, these things you don't want to read. You have to do your homework. You have to read and discover. At home, well, there's getting the children up, there's getting the food prepared, there's doing the shopping, there's doing the school runs, there's making dinner, there's tidying up, there's bath, bed, and then, and then, then some free time, and then what happens? I fall asleep. Give me a break. It's not easy, is it, to have free time to read our Bibles? But let me ask you, the busy housewife, the busy mother, the busy employee, the busy student, do you think that God doesn't know what you have to do? He knows what you have to do, and he loves you. God's not there with a stopwatch and a counter, measuring how long and how many chapters of the Bible read each day. You're a good Christian today because you've read three and a half chapters. Oh, you're not so good because you read only half a chapter, or whatever. It's not as if the love and the grace and the blessing stops if you only read two and a half chapters instead of three. So let's be assured of that. The reality is, and this is what we need to focus on, the reality is that we need God's word. It's not a duty. We need God's word for salvation. We need it to know the gospel. And we need it for our spiritual health, just like we need our food for our physical health. In Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus answers and says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So reading the Bible, listening to sermons, it's not a duty to perform. 
It's not to earn points with God. We need what God says. You need what God says. Like a starving person needs that bread. Like a newborn baby desperate for the milk. The issue is not the amount that we read, but it's the appetite and it's the attitude. 1 Peter 2 verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. You know, when you see that newborn baby's face as it's really desperate for the milk and the desperation in its face as it wants that milk. Have you seen that in the, in the, with the babies? Well, that's what we, how we should be. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation so that now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now let's remember the greedy merchants that Amos criticizes in his sermon here. What was their attitude to God's word? What was their attitude to worship? Well, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? When will that sermon be over so that we can do that or this and the other? Essentially, they couldn't wait to get past the festival or the, or the Saturday Sabbath as it was. They couldn't, get, wait, couldn't wait to get past them. The times when God would be remembered, when his word would be read, when they would have opportunity to hear God's voice. They went through the motions because it was the done thing of the day, but their hearts were where their treasure was in their cash registers on the next day in the marketplace. Now, is God and his word, is our worship together a point in the day, a point in the week to get over and past as quickly as we can, to tick the box and to get on with our schedule? Now, I know sometimes life is very, very busy and sometimes there are things that we have to do and we just have to get past, but what's our attitude? That's different, isn't it? It's different having to do something to put bread on the table, but there's an attitude. Now, I know, and you know, and we all know, that there are those things that we have to do to pay the bills, to keep the business going, to deliver the products, to deliver the care or the education. And sometimes it is very hard to switch off, isn't it? You know, do you find yourself sometimes uh, in a service or, or even a prayer meeting or when you pick up your Bible in morning or evening, whenever it is, and actually your mind is so full of different things, it's very hard to concentrate. We're all like that, let's be honest. Let's be truthful that we don't come all to our Bibles every morning with a, the holiest of attitudes and with the clearest of minds. We don't do that, do we? That's the reality. Sometimes it's hard to switch off, just to stop, just to be still, to be still in God's presence and to focus on him and his word. And this is one of the challenges in the sin-spoiled world, isn't it? Because we live in a, a world that's messed up, but we're not going to find it easy even to have a relationship with God because of the pressures around us. And let's not forget, though, it's not just the world out there and the pressures and the demands on us. It's also the sin remaining in our hearts. It's the sin remaining in your heart. It's the avoidance of God's word because it challenges us with its beauty, its moral beauty. And it shows up things that we're having to face that are uncomfortable. It's because we've fallen in love with our plans and our own dreams and we haven't asked God for his instruction and we're scared that as we read the Bible, we might find that God might tell us something different because we've gone ahead without thinking and to pray first and to read the Bible first. Now, as I said, many of us live very pressured lives, but why is it that we find it so hard to reach for our Bibles? Why is it that we find it so hard to talk to God in those five and ten minute snippets in the coffee break? For example, why is it that we choose to watch the news or to watch something on YouTube on our phone when we could easily just spend a few moments praying or reading the Bible? I find that so easy to do that, isn't it? So often we do find time for a hobby, for a computer game, or for even the gym. But more than life itself, we need God's word. 
We need the attitude of Psalm 119, verse 18. Open the eyes of my heart that I may see wonderful things in your law. And then verse 72 from the same psalm. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. That's the attitude we need to pray for and to cultivate. So let's rejoice and let's revel in the fact that God is not silent now. And we're summing up now as we draw to a close. Let's revel in the fact that here and now we're hearing God's voice. We have opportunity. We're living in the day of grace where God is speaking to us where we have opportunity to hear messages from God's word, to hear sermons, to hear, to read Christian books, to, to, to listen and to read for ourselves. God is talking to us in the gospel. God is speaking to us about Jesus, his son. Believe on my son who died for you and you'll be saved. God is speaking to you. Revel in it. Rejoice in the fact that God is not silent. He's offering to save you. He's offering to remember your sins no more. Revel in that. Rejoice in that. Respond to it before it's too late. He's talking to us. He's advising us. He's instructing us through his word. He's comforting and encouraging us through his word. So let's listen and let's fight to hear his voice over and above the pressures of this world. They'll clamor in so quickly. Let's fight to hear his voice. Let's fight against the sinfulness in our own hearts to avoid the challenging beauty of Jesus and, and his word. And let's love the word of the Savior who loved us and the one who gave himself for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd help us to take your word seriously. Help us, Lord, not to neglect what you say, but to consider carefully what we hear. Help us, Lord, not just to go through the motions so we can get past a certain point and then get on with our lives our way. But Lord, help us to pause truly, to read, to consider, to listen, and to change. Maybe even change our big plans. Maybe even change our big dreams if it's, if it's not in accordance with your will. Help us to change the way we speak, our attitudes, our behavior. Help us to be responsive to your word. Help us to take you seriously. And Lord, help us to remember that you do say that there is an end point where there'll be silence. Lord, we don't want to get to that point with you. Save us from that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.